that time of the week again. It's Flat Out RC podcast time, the podcast where we talk all things radio control flight. We're talking radio control planes, helis and drones. My name's Andrew Sill coming to you from the land down under in rainy Melbourne, Australia. That's right. Still bad weather, but I'll talk a bit about that later. Uh, but gee, I've got a good episode for you this week. Uh, I love it when I can find a guest that has some expert knowledge in a particular segment of our hobby. And I've got one such person in Robert Taylor, who makes propellers down here in Australia. So stay tuned for that really, really good episode. But before we get to having a chat with Robert, you know the drill. Let's look at what's on my mind. What has been on my mind? Well, last week I told you that the Bansdale Warbird event was postponed due to the weather. And it's been rescheduled to the 12th and 13th of November down here in Victoria at the Bansdale Field in Gippsland down on, uh, what's the address? 1125 Beng Worden Road, Goon Nur. You know what you do? Get onto Google, type in Bansdale and District Model Aero Club and it shows up on Google Maps. Uh, and you'll find your way there. Uh, 12th and 13th of November, I'm going to the event. I've booked some accommodation for the Saturday night so I can be there to join in the fun. Touch wood. The weather's good and it's not going to be rainy because uh, we've really been subjected to some pretty poor weather. So uh, get on down. Bansdale Warbird events. I talked about it a bit already, but 12th and 13th of November. Field will be open on the Friday to the Monday. So if you want to make a long weekend of it, you're more than welcome to. There is a camping fee of $10 per night uh, and there's toilets and hot showers, 25 bucks per pilot entry and there's some prizes and raffles and all that kind of stuff. All the cool kids will be there. Uh, so bring your Warbird down there or Warbird-like plane, whether it's a jet, propeller, EDF, you name it. Biplane, monoplane, bring it down to the Bansdale Warbirds over Bansdale event at the Bansdale and district model era club i will see you there and i'm probably going to bring my camera gear I might shoot a video as well anyway i do owe them a video because i've been talking about getting down to bansdale for a while <clears throat> speaking of getting down to places there's not much happening down my neck of the woods when it comes to model flying and that is because we are in the midst of a lot of rain and a lot of that rain has caused a lot of damage to a lot of fields uh, or the fields are very, very soaked. And of course, you can't get on down to a field when it's soaking wet. But there's always something else that we can be doing in this wonderful hobby of ours. You know, I always say that model flying is not just about going to the field and sometimes not just about building a model. There's so many other things uh that encompass the hobby and keep us occupied. So, for example, this week, my new jet has arrived. I'm going to do a video to unveil it shortly, uh, not in the next few weeks, um, but I will be shooting a video to unveil this new model. Wait until you see it. It's beautiful. But I, I'm starting to get the gear together to put to assemble it. Uh, so my latest purchase is something a lot of people have been talking about, which is a Boomer RC Smooth Flight system. It's a sort of a gyro distribution board, all that kind of, you know, dual redundancy battery kind of system. Uh, and so I've got that. I'm going to try that. Everybody's been raving about them in jets and things like that. And uh, the thing I like about it, and we've had uh, Rick Jell on on the podcast, or Brendan, Brendan, I think we had on. And uh, we he, we talked about the Smooth Flight system. It's 
it's not as invasive as traditional gyro. It's sort of got this AI built into it that sort of judges the gain levels and stuff like that. So I really like that because I don't like a gyro kind of system that takes over control of the plane a bit too much. I just want it to be uh, seen, not heard in a kind of kind of way. You know, I don't want it to be too intrusive. So I'm going to give that a go. Uh, but what's interesting in, in – and so I had to do a bit of research about what I need to get. Fortunately, the Boomer RC website's pretty good. I, I run Spectrum radio equipment, so clearly explained in their manual and whatever what I needed to get. I've bought all that. Um, surprising the cost of things at the moment. We're, we're in a, if you live in Australia, because there's many people that listen to this overseas, the Australian dollar versus, say, the US dollar is pretty bad. So we have to pay a fair bit. And most of the hobby works in US dollars, really, from manufacturer level down. So... Uh, when we convert the money to Australian dollars, it's pretty damn expensive for stuff compared to five years ago. Even so, I'm very reluctant to try to spend money on planes at the moment because the cost just seems to be going up. But that uh, it's not the re- it's not the retailers' fault. Uh, they're just subjected to the exchange rate fluctuations uh, just as much as we are. So, I'm not blaming them, but uh, a bit difficult, you know, when the prices keep on going up. Uh, but anyway. Um, so that's one thing I've been doing is, you know, I enjoy the, I enjoy the process. And I think many of you do as well, enjoy the process of researching stuff for our hobby. So, okay, I've got this new model. What model should I get? What servos do I need to run? What kind of radio gear am I going to do? Now I've got to research the build and, uh, you know, where do I place all the components and where's the CG going to be right and what batteries am I going to use? I bought another battery, actually. I bought a, a Lifey pack from Boomer RC as well because uh, I need it for my uh, ECU, for the... Um, the turbine because after my crash it took out the battery as well so i had to replace that trust me turbine jet crashes are very expensive repair jobs it's 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 a bit annoying actually how expensive it is it's got me questioning my involvement with jets i know i keep on saying all roads lead to jets uh but this might be my last one if i have another mishap because i just don't want to go through what i've been through again for the sake of flying planes, because I love flying aerobatic planes and my gliders and things like that as well. But anyway, I digress. So yeah, so there's lots of things that we can do, and and part of it is even just talking to friends that fly model planes, because we always end up talking about model planes. So can't get to the flying field. There's always something else to do. Enough of my ranting and raving. Let's get to the best part of the podcast, which is guest time. And this week's guest is a really interesting one. And, and I do enjoy it when I get the opportunity to interview and discuss the hobby with, with someone that has expertise in a certain specific aspect of the hobby. So, for example, talking to someone about gliding that might be a glider expert or someone that might be an expert on model engines, like we had John Lord on talking about, you know, carburetors and things like that for model engines, what he does with that. Well, I found another one when I was at the recent uh, Shepherd and Mammoth event, and his name is Robert Taylor. He comes from uh, Victoria, up here the Murray River area, and he makes propellers. And I tell you what, this guy has a tale and a half to tell. Uh, he doesn't have a form a formal education in propellers or anything associated with propellers, but he's become an expert. And you'll find through this discussion how how much he knows, and uh, I, don't, I don't want to give too much away. So anyway, let's get into it. This is here's my chat with Robert Taylor. 
Well, a few months ago, I was at the Shepherd and Mammoth flying event and I met a man by the name of Robert Taylor and he was telling me all about the propellers that he makes. And I said, you would make the perfect podcast guest. So Robert Taylor, welcome to the Flat Out RC podcast. Well, thank you for having me. And it was a great day over there at Shepparton. And there was one of my propellers there on the big half-scale model that was flown. That's right. Performed really well. So we had a great day, even though it was wet and rainy. That is true. Now, speaking of wet and rainy, you were just telling me you're up, uh, what's the town that you live in? In Leesville, up on the Murray River, north, northern Victoria. Yeah, so you're uh, in the zone for flooding at the moment, but you, you're not flooded. Correct, yes, we're high and dry. We're still 10Ks from the Murray River, which is very high through Jupiter. Now heading to Swan Hill. That's right. It seems to be travelling down down the river there. Um, Correct. A lot of warnings, which is a, a big shame, really. Now, we're talking aeromodelling. So, of course, yes. the, the standard question I have to start off with is, where did your journey in aeromodelling begin? Where did it begin? Oh, in the... Uh, primary school, um, I was born after the war, and in the 60s, um, we had our birth of diesels and could buy our ether from our local chemist shop and mix our own fuels and all that type of thing. And uh, when I got a bit older, in the teenagers, and I had an older brother who's five years older than I was, and, and we got into control line team racing, FAI, which is a 2.5, and Class B, which was a these are 29s in the 5cc class and had a lot of fun. We used to travel down to Moorabbin in Melbourne for the comps, the state comps and all that sort of thing. And that was where we all started from and reworked our own props. We didn't really know in those days what was right or wrong, but we tried. So, yes, that's where we basically started from. So were you so you were always from up in the country? Yes, born and bred up here. And third generation dairy farmers up here on the... Northern Victoria. Gee, hard workers then, dairy farmers. Yes, you've got a lot of time yourself and a lot of time to think about things and driving tractors or milking cows or whatever, so keeps you alive and awake. Yep. Okay, so you're doing the control line thing. Always interested to know, where did, where did you first see you know, control line flying that led to you getting into it? Where did we first see it? It was at the... The annual show in Kiena, annual show, and the local club was just formed then in 1964, and they put on a control line stunt display on the oval while the show was in progress, and uh, that's where it generated the interest in the first place, and watch the local guys fly their control lines on the oval at the Kiena show. There you go. See, I always say that uh, we all got into it after we saw it, saw somebody flying a plane or something like that, and that's... Correct. Well, back then, it was really a step forward. It was really novel because, uh, you know, we've never never seen anything like that in our younger days when we were really kids. Yeah, okay. And, okay, so you were... Uh, were you scratch building these models or were they kits? Both, actually, yeah. Um, there wasn't too many kits available back in those days. It was the old hot rod type uh, thing, solid wing, box fuzz, and used to perform fairly well. But uh, we thought they did anyway. And then we got into the serious competitions with the, F the FAI team racing. Uh, we had a 
was running a, an eight of 15 in ours. Oliver Tiger was the main opposition. Um, they had a bit more mileage, a few more laps to the 10cc tank than the Eater, but the Eater had the legs on and was a bit more horsepower from being rear induction. It was all good fun. But I was only a 15 or 16 year old teenager. I used to fly the thing and my brother used to start it. Okay. Now, okay. And then when you turned 18, did you continue to, to fly uh, the models or not? Well, that was about when we stopped flying models. We purchased another farm, the neighbour's farm. We got too busy and that, so we had a bit of a layoff. And then in the 70s, um, pylon racing was starting up in Victoria and the Melbourne clubs were looking for a venue out of Melbourne to hold the pylon initially. And uh, John Hewan and a few of those older guys came up here and brought up the the pylon races, FAIs and the quarter midges back then, which were 15s. And yes, and it all started in the Kiena, the Kiena Club. We manned the pylons and and ran the the tents and that, that and were fascinated by the, what we came to town. Range at Feeling was one of the first to come down from Sydney and back in those days. And we'd never seen anything like that in uh, up until then. So we're talking the radio control era now? Yes, we're in the radio control. This was in 1977. 1977, okay. And yes. so did you then, did that spur you on to get involved with radio control? Yes, that, uh, well, we learned to fly and then we started building our own pylon races and and from then on, and uh, yeah, we flew, flew those pylon well into the 90s. And uh, then we got into... Uh, Old timers come along, started up in Victoria, and and by that stage, well, uh, you know, up here we get um, good thermaling weather, and the old timer thing was very popular, and uh, that was where it started um, starting to make the props. So you went from fast to slow. Yes, fast to slow, but it was the efficiency of, of the prop and the propeller to do the job that that got me interested. Well, let's get into talking about the propellers because I know that's a big passion of yours. And, and you know, I yep. love having guests like you on that have got an, a, a, a sort of a, a, an interest in one little aspect of the hobby, but a very important one in that being the propeller. So you were saying that, you know, where did this interest in propellers come from? Was it from the pylon racing? It started off in the pylon racing. I was working with some of our guys that were flying them. But again, we didn't have the experience to know what was really needed yes we improved them slightly it wasn't until we got into the texaco flying the old timers that that stood out a glaringly problem up here in texaco where it's a 5000 rpm and a, and a big prop 16 inch prop on a os 61 four stroke and the commercial props, they would not penetrate the inversion layers we have up here between the different layers of atmosphere. And so much so, you're climbing out and hit one of these inversion layers, the propeller would lose thrust and the model would just stall out of it and you'd turn around and have another crack at it. And um, that was the, really the initial start of the design a better prop to go through these inversion layers and that's what we did. And that point, 
that uh, now though there's been 20 years of R&D into the models to get where we're at at the moment. What I'm fascinated to know is you're sitting on the farm, yes, working hard, and you, you're thinking about a a better propeller. Yes. How yes. are you researching what to do? What to do? Yeah. Well, a lot of it. That's the beauty of, of modelling. All the R and D was done with the models, and you'd get an idea, and you'd try it and make a prop with this idea. It either worked or it didn't. As simple as that. And and being a model, you, there's no um, personal injury or anything like that involved. And you, every time we flew, we had a stopwatch running and all that sort of thing to check on things. Okay, so it was a bit of trial and error. But did you read Absolutely. books or? Oh, well, all those read books. Um, once we started manufacturing the props, the first prop I made was in the year 2000, actually. It was hand carved, hand made, um, made it up as a true peach prop, um, came to the leading edge and didn't really know what to do with it. So we just rounded it off and we had a generous blade area on the on the prop. And yes, we could get through these inversion layers for you know for the model to max out much easier. And that was the start of the R and D at that point. Yeah, okay. Now, what is the problem with the with props is that you see? As I see, yep. the props were the, that we could buy, the commercial props, they really wasn't that far advanced to what the Wright brothers used back in the turn of the century. They were still a straight, flat paddle-type blade um, with a something like a Clark Y airfoil on it. And they analysed every aspect of the propeller uh, the best I could. And would you like more detail there? What went on there? Yeah, How, give me, give me the. the yeah, people okay. want to know the detail. They're, they're enjoying was, the story. I can tell. <laughs> yeah, and um, so I went and had a look at a, um, a dock of an aircraft going through the sound barrier. And what interested me was when you get the boom from the sound barrier, but out the back of that boom was a pressure wave. Now, that pressure wave was 28 degrees. And to me, that was the natural separation of the atmosphere with the least amount of friction. So that was incorporated into the leading edge of the propellers. And uh, that way then uh, we could separate the atmosphere more efficiently. And that was the start of the development. So you must be a very observant person, though. Well, you're interested in these things and you think about them a lot and keep you awake quite a bit at night time and all that sort of thing. And that was the start of it. We found that um, the leading edge on the propeller was the main stumbling block to get through these inversion layers. And when I after I realised that these inversion layers were like a brick wall to get through, they were um, quite thick um, to get through. So we took it from there. And now we're using a, a very highly developed airfoil on the props, as you saw on the, at Shepparton on the big half-size spacewalker and the amount of thrust that that generates. And all that prop there was a... 
a 32.12 that I made for Tim and it performed way past his expectations. But uh, the leading edge is only the start of it. It's the whole package of the airfoil and then we get to the tip. That's the interesting part. Well, yeah, now oh, that was that was it is the interesting part is that you get to tip. So you you've done some work on the leading edge, and have you yes. played around with different foils on the, on the prop. Yes, different foils till we got it to work. And but the does biggest, that does that change depending on the model that you're flying though, and what what style of flying? No, no. Um, the, the big thing about it is the beauty of working with um, models and that the, everything you draw up is scale. And I've, the props I've made for the ultralights, you know, we've made props up to seven feet in diameter. But all the basics, the design and the airfoil and that is just scaled up from the models because you know it works. Yeah, okay. And that's the big thing. Now let's get to the tip. Tell everybody about yep. these, these magical tips that you put on the propellers. Right. Where that came from, um, ultralight boys were getting props made and then um, – a professional Yabia turned up and he had a favourite lake up at West Wyalong that was 45 k's across it. And it was taking him two hours to get across this lake um, with an aluminium, four metre aluminium tinny with an outboard on the back. And then he bought a, an airboat with a Volkswagen mounted on the back and a four foot diameter prop and about a 36 inches of pitch on it. And uh, that cut his time to get across the lake in half. He got over there in an hour uh, from, compared with two hours. And then typical Yabia and fisherman and that, he went under a low branch and, of course, the branch hit the guard around the prop and the rest was history. The prop got damaged severely and then he finally rang me and asked me whether they were interested in making a prop. And I said, yes, I went to see him and got details and what have you. Started making the prop. The thing I haven't mentioned yet, I made the machines to make the props. I actually made the model size one first and then I made exactly the same uh, design to make up to seven foot props, the bigger ones. So we've got two sizes, but it's basically a copier with a router to do to carve the actual prop. So that's how it's made. So when I started making this prop for the airboat, I thought, well, these things are really working hard, and I did some sums and come to the conclusion that they're operating on 70% slip. You're getting about 30% traction, you know, from the prop. So I put a return on the blade prop. So, Robert, what what is this return? What does it actually, like, describe it? Describe it. A lot of the props you see now on ultralights and starting to get into the modelling props as well, they're washed out on the tips. They come up, wash out on the tips. What I tried that for a start on the old timers and that, and and that was a slight improvement. But the big thing about washing it in for the airboat, we took it back up to his favourite lake after it had going and the standard prop he had on the boat, the swans could fly away from him. They could take off and fly away. Well, this time he was um, with my prop on it. He was passing the swans. Turned out the thing was doing 100k on the lake. And this is a four-metre aluminium tinny that struggled to do 40 to 50. 
was 200k. And the same revs as folks he was turning at four grand. And of course, he got over the other side of the lake in half an hour. Next thing, the GPS is going off its brain because all these um, yabby pots are underneath him. So he shut the throttle and of course, the stern wave came over the back of the boat and swamped the boat and hit the prop. And, but he, he managed to stop it from sinking. And uh, yeah, so that was the start of it. So I thought there's something in this for the efficiency-wise and the fly duration in the old-timers. Um, Love that. Uh, are you familiar with the duration format for old times? Yeah, but explain it for everybody so that they know. Okay. Duration is a high-powered thing. You get a, a limited time engine run. doesn't matter how much fuel you use, but it's all uh, a 28-second engine run, a YS63 gets, and that's the way we go. So I made up one of these return props for the YS, and I had a thrust meter there. The props I was using were my own before this and um, performing really well. Um, so when when I made the thrust meter up, I uh, fired the YS up and it, at 14.1 with a 12.5 prop on it, that's 14,100. Uh, it was producing um, seven and a half pounds of thrust. And I thought, well, that's fair enough. The model weighed three and a half pounds, so it's two to one. So I stopped it and then I made the um, same 12.5 with the return on it, pitched the same and fired it up and it pulled the YS back to 11 eighths. So it knocked 2,200 revs off the YS because it had so much more grip on the air. And then I walked around the back of the thrust meter and here's the scale off the dial. And so it produced more thrust at a lot less revs. So I de-pitched the prop and got the revs back up to 14,000 and it's almost doubled the thrust to what we were getting with a washed out tip. So basically what you're doing is putting what I call a little like winglets or something on the end of the props that face... No, because I use a half round bit on the router to um, carve the, the blade... It's where you set the micro switch to stop that and you have a return of the uh, rounded bit on the pitch side of the prop. And that retains your your uh, airflow on there and gives the blade a lot more command and grip on the air. Yeah, okay. So it's just a more efficient propeller, basically. Oh, miles more efficient. And then the next one I made up was for Texaco. That was a 16.7. And um, the revs were down a little to the normal washed-out tip we were using. Still one of my own props. The airfoil was the same. It took off on the ground really quickly, quickest it's ever got off the ground. It, it, um, the airspeed in the air after when I was driving home, and I thought I was a bit disappointed in the way after the way it took off. So typical, you think about these things for a few days, and then uh, I went back to the sound barrier uh, thing going, the plane going through the sound barrier and that pressure wave out the back. And then the penny dropped. Um, the tip on the prop uh, made to 14 degrees, which was half of that pressure wave of the sound barrier. And uh, then what it's doing now is the centrifugal force of the air on the prop blade 
is actually generating thrust and not taking a lot of power to do it. Okay. So do your, you know how we hear about um, props ripping? Yep. And that noise of the, you know, the prop ripping. You then yes. don't have that noise anymore. No, no, because we've got control of it. And the other big thing that Tim did over in Shepparton the other day when it was raining, he, he wanted to run his engine, which he did, so he could I could see the prop running on his engine. And he had a couple of my nephews hanging onto the wing tube and um, he opened the throttle up and he said, have a listen to this. Because we're using um, sound barrier angles and shapes and everything on the propeller, these props go through the sound barrier. They won't, won't flutter, they won't do anything, just keep working. Right. And he says, have a listen to this, and it hit the sound barrier, and he gave it more throttle, and she just went again. And these two nephews, well, they're in their 40s, and it was dragging them along the wet grass. <laughs> really? Over at Shepparton. It was producing 60 kilos of thrust. He's playing his model. His model weighs 32. Okay, so that though, that motor he's got in it is it's a DLE triple two, isn't it? I think or that's that's exactly right. Because um, when he uh, was building the model and had it built, he didn't know what to do for a prop. And he was talking, and one of my nephews is in the same club as Tim up there, and he's. A, club secretary and he says, oh, I'll ask my uncle, you know, typical, he makes props, which it did. And uh, Tim says, well, I want to just in case I know it's over. And I said, yes, that's okay. I went out and bought timber and material to do it. But I said, I'll make you one first and we'll try it and see whether it suits your, your motor and your model and we can tweak it. He says, what are you talking about? And he says, usually when I buy a prop, it doesn't work goes in the shed and you go and buy another one. And I said, well, I'll make the thing so I can tweak it to what suits your motor and model. So, and because it's such a big model, as you know, um, it had to be certified. So they got the MAAA head bloke to do that. And um, the nephew had the phone going. I was listening to their conversation. He said, right, we're going to do third throttle taxi runs up and down the runway you know, to get the feel of the model. Anyway, that's all very fine. He uh, fires it up, third throttle, away she goes. Ten metres after it took off, after he let it go, it took off. <laughs> Here's a comment on it. Wasn't expecting that because yeah. as soon as it lifted off, he pulled a bit more throttle on, gave another quarter, got up to about half throttle, and this monster of a model climbed out at 45 degrees. And his comment then was, well, I've never seen one of these big things climb like that. And then you were still only half throttle. Well, you made comment on your last um, podcast I saw about the power of it. And you saw the way Tim saved that model when the wind caught it and approached the landing. That's and right. After, that he got, after it got back, Tim shook me by the hand and said, thank God you made a decent prop because otherwise it would have been in bits, wouldn't it? Well, that's right. The um, On the video that I shot for the Shepherd and Mammoth and, Interviewed Tim Nolan that we're, that we're talking about, and he's um, uh, what is it, a fly, a fly baby or the no, spacewalker? Um, spacewalker, space, which is oh, it's a beautiful model, and uh, and the prop really uh, does work well on it. And okay, so the amount of thrust that you're getting out of that, and it's just the why isn't anybody else? Why isn't anybody else doing that? Well, it's interesting you say that because I get this all the time. But the interesting comment that the test pilot made. 
you know, that came across the nephew's phone to mind was how in the hell can one bloke improve the efficiency of a propeller by more than 50% when the multinationals can't? And that was his comment, and I thought that was, that was pretty pretty flash. And I thought that was a bit of all right. So, but when you think about it, um, and when you're on your own, if you've got that train of thought and you understand the way the prop should work and all that sort of thing, you don't have to try and convince the next bloke in the company that what you're going to do. You get out and try it. Could you mass produce these kind of uh, props? Absolutely, but you know, we could certainly mass produce them. Um, I'm working on um, another one now um, for FAI pylon racing because um, um, they're only a seven-inch propeller, but they've, they've got to turn 30, 32,000 in the air. And we, our club, we always run um, at least one team selection comp up here, and they come from all over, all the flies that want to have a crack at the Australian team, and they come up and fly up here. But last time we were up here, um, they'd hit the wall at about, 340, not around the tops, three, 330 around that area. But you could hear the motor coming downwind. The motor was picking up, the revs were picking up, but the planes weren't flying any faster. They was, they'd hit the wall, and to me, I, that was music to my ears. So I've made these new ones up with the return on it. They haven't been put on an engine yet. But they're using the same pitch as what they're using on the straight blades. They're, the straight blade is operating, when I did some calculations on it, on 18% slip in the air. So if we can stop that and get that grip onto the models, that model it will be, or the prop will be capable of doing over 400k. Gee. How in the hell are they going to fly it? I don't know. <laughs> I could, I can keep up. No hope. In hell That's one hundred and twenty meters a second. Yeah, no, I couldn't. I couldn't do that. So okay, so and but everything that you're making is wood, isn't it? You haven't played around with any yes. other materials. Well, I use, um, have uh, made some um, sport pile on uh, the carbon fiber and all that sort of thing, but. The big thing, wood I can make, we use um, uh, Tassie oak, which is a eucalyptus grown in Tassie, and the growth rings are close to, closer together in Tassie because of the cooler climate. And I buy quarter grain timber. It's cut off the quarters in the log, and every growth ring is a spar. And I've blown wings off duration models because they're just going that hard going up. And uh, the wooden props will they will hang on, won't shatter like a carbon fibre does. And the big thing that I like about it is carbon fibre, what I found, multiplies their harmonics. Wood absorbs it. So that's a huge thing. That's a good point. What about flex, though, in the propeller as well? Is that, a, is that an issue? No, not with the way you do it. Once you get the airfoil right, that's the other thing. You cannot use a typical flat wing airfoil on a propeller if you want it to work properly. Because a flat wing, you know, it's made to fly flat, like a Clark Y or whatever. When it's going around, it's got to do five things. 
one that's going around, and once you get the leading edge right, you actually drop the pressure in front of the blade before you hit max pressure on the pitch of the blade. And what that's doing is it's sucking the, the plane forward, allowing the pitch to get full thrust forward. And, and um, we've proven this time and time again with the ultralights, the guy full-size ones, a prop with that airfoil on it, it halves the run-up to lift-off. And the other thing it does, it doubles the rate of climb. Have you ever put any of these props into, you know, pattern planes or IMAC planes where they're always trying to chase extra power? Not at this point, but I'd love to do it because um, uh, just the last month or so, we've got a new member in our club who's into uh, large-scale pylon racing. Now, they're about quarter-scale model. They've got a Zanoa 62 engine in the front. And they run, uh, well, the, the go-to prop was an American modern name, an APC, that was their go-to prop. And this guy knew I was making props, and so I, I made him their 2015 prop. So I made him a couple of 2015s to try. So we went out there and I took my thrust meter out there. The American prop turned at uh, 8,500 on the Zanoa. And it produced um, seven, six point seven kilograms of thrust. And he was telling me, and then because he tried the two props at home before we got there, and, and mine was down at the seven and a half thousand. And he's telling me, "Oh, you've got to get the revs up. You've got to think you've got to get the revs up." And I just says, "We'll see." Anyway, put the change props, fired it up. Yes, it was down a thousand revs, but get this. It produced 12.4 kilos of thrust. <laughs> Nearly doubled. Yeah. Anyway, he flew it, and uh, it's never seen a thing fly that fast in his life. He was as nervous as all get out. You could see him shaking. And I said, Are you flying in a big circle, a big oval? I said, Pylon, you know, it's up and down wind. And once he did that, um, because we had. Uh, one and a half times the thrust of the weight of the model compared with the APC was three quarters of the thrust of the model. It wasn't game just to pull elevator to get it around one. You know, oh, I can't do that. It'll drop the nose or drop a wing and all that sort of thing. But when you've got one and a half times the thrust of the weight of the model, the prop's got control and it just grooves. And when he started flying up and down wind, it was just getting quicker and quicker. And then the motor motor would have revved out around about the 9,000 RPM and it was fairly honking. Okay. Yeah. Tell, tell us a bit, just go in detail how you how you manufacture it. So you, we know that you're using that, that Tazio, or is it yep. Tazio? And then, like, describe how, you know, you make these these propellers, you know, from sourcing right. the wood. Well, Depends what one you're making, you know, you, you buy the timber, it's 19 mil, it's kill and dried, all ready to go. You buy what you need and, and um, the um, large-scale ones, the two layers of timbers, that, that's your blank, your epoxy, industrial epoxy, glue them all together, you cut the shape out you want, bolt it under the machine, under the router, leave the end on the, the prop, it's a, 
inch and a half with a bolt through it and that bolts to the frame of the, the um, prop maker and it's deadly accurate once you get your patterns right and uh, go from there and yes and uh, that's what it does it takes about moves about four inches a minute and uh, carves the carves exactly on your blank to what your pattern is so but it's not computer driven is it no computer whatsoever the reason being i'm not a computer person i'm not that age group yeah. um and if i want to wash a, a prop in or wash it out i just simply wedge the, the pattern to the frame of the machine and there's my wash out and then computers you've got to redraw the whole thing my, what i know about them anyway so yep that'd be 100 percent right Gee, that's amazing. And so, okay, how long does it take to to, to build a, a prop for a model plane? Well, the last ones I built are the 2015s. It takes about five hours from start to finish of a prop. That's starting from, that's after you've got the blank um, glued together and the epoxy's dry and cured and all that sort of thing. So the actual carving time of the actual prop into the blank is the quickest part of it and then to finish them off and to true the pitch up and all that i have a, a belt sander with a with a jig set up behind it that is um that's your pitch you set it up to the pitch you wanted with the right amount of helical in the blade and all that sort of thing and that's to finish it off and then but the big time is uh, time money it's no shortcuts when you come to balancing you've got to get them right so you're balancing the prop time. yeah so you're balancing yep. the prop after you've yeah finished it off yeah well, well if you put it on the belt sander and see how you're going and if one blade's heavier than the other you measure it up and that and you might be able to take a light cut over the whole blade surface to uh, you know to get it back through so it's that's the way I do it. And then do you, are you painting over them or how do you finish off? Oh, them? yes. Um, being a modeler, I coat that after the prop, I'm happy with the prop. It's all carved up and ready to go, sanded up. I coat the whole prop in um, super glue, CA glue. Okay. It takes about a two-ounce bottle to do a 60-inch prop. Run it on and spread it with a, with a stick or a spreader and let it dry for a couple of days. Sand it all back and then paint it. Right. And that glues all your fibres together and holds them in. Ah, that's interesting. And then I think Tim's Tim's prop on Tim Nolan's plane, that was painted up to Correct. Match his and plane. The paint I use from that, I use a, a, a Norlane, um, um an ocean paint. It's supposed to be guaranteed boat paint and 10 years in salt water because the biggest problem with a wooden prop, as you know, is uh, if you get caught in a rain shower or hailstorms, the moisture can get under the under the paint and, and rock the you know get into the the timber underneath. And that's why I used a marine paint there to be a lot tougher. A lot of thought, a lot of thoughts gone into this. I'd love to see. Yes. Like, I'm I'm a bit of an aerobatics fan, and and aerobatics. Yes, people... I'd love to make a prop for your aerobatics. The other thing we found with the pylon races and and all the flying, and once you get the prop right, a lot of the yaw and everything from a straight blade prop is gone. The prop tracks straight, and for pattern, and that's really critical. The other thing, what we found 
if you're using um, well, like the um, large-scale pylon race, they're using 15 inches of pitch. But when you put a return on the on the prop, you don't need 15 inches of pitch. You can come back at an inch and a half on the pitch, or thereabouts, or even two inches to get the same performance. And if you do that, you've got more thrust again um, at a lower speed. And for pattern climbing and that, when you've got so much thrust more than the weight of the model, you've got total control. Yeah. So how do you how do you determine the size of a propeller for the motor? Well, you go off the manufacturing specifications for a start. That's exactly what Tim said. Um, Thirty on that motor of his and the big spacewalker, um, thirty. Four inch, I think, was maximum diameter for that motor, and that's why he settled for a 32. The second prop I made for him was a, a 34, uh, 3410. He hasn't put that one on yet, but uh, and he's asking me what do I think the differences will be, and I said, well, you're going to have more static thrust with the less pitch and the bigger diameter at the same revs, and it'll actually fly a bit slower. Yeah. Uh, than the 12 inch pitch. But he's that wrapped in flying and he went to the camera with some of his mates or somewhere anyway and they were doing um, loops and rolls and all that sort of thing with the big thing. And so so he was quite wrapped. It's pretty aerobatic. It's not scale like at all. But um, yeah, did you? Because <laughs> no, he tries to take off scale like. He says, I start with a third throttle, wait till the tail comes up, and then he pulls a bit more power on and she just lifts away. And I think you noticed that too. Right? Yes. Well, he ha- uh, Tim had to go go around after a massive yes. gust came in. Yes, just was about you know a few meters off the deck, and yes. the way in which this plane accelerated and got back into the air, I thought, oh, that is just amazing. You can just tell that it, there's plenty of thrust there. Well, so you saw the power for yourself, and then he turns around and he says, oh, "I only use half throttle." Yeah, I know, but it's just crazy. But because <laughs> yeah, that's right, you were there when he said it. Yeah, well, I remember that. It was interesting that. So with I'm um, talking about aerobatics here. Is I, I've got a 120 cc petrol motor, I've got a 29 by nine carbon propeller on it, and a lot right. of people are using 28 by 12s as well. So less diameter, a bit more pitch, and the 29 by nine was a recommendation to me based on the manufacturer of Falcon propellers, um, doing yes. some 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 thrust tests and whatever. But it was. It was seen as the go-to for 3D flying, where you need that sort of grunt down low. You're pitching, yeah, and when models doing crazy things, yeah. Yes, but the only problem is it rips like nothing on earth when you really get it, it up what? and run. It, it rips. It makes oh. – it's pretty loud prop once you, you know get it moving a bit quicker. Um, and right. in certain orientations as well, I've actually refined the art of how to stop it from ripping, but you've got to really manage the throttle. But – um. But uh, I'm tempted to. Uh, I think on another, actually on another hundred cc, I've got a smaller prop, a twenty eight, ten or eleven or twelve, one of those kind of things. But right. So yeah. So so basically, you've actually said that that you know if you go bigger diameter, less pitch, it's going to be slower than smaller diameter and more pitch. Correct. But yeah, you'll have more static thrust on the bigger diameter and the less pitch one. Yeah, and it'll fly slower for the same amount of percentage of throttle. Because you, with the two props I've made for Tim, well, there's 16 percent less pitch on the, the bigger one. So it'll be interesting when he puts it on. He's going to fill me in when when he does it. And so, 
that'll be interesting to hear. And so once you get sort of a, de- a design, though, can you replicate it okay, or do you have to set everything up again? No, I make they're the only, that's the only design I'm making. We're doing the same design for the ultralights, the 60-inch props and all that sort of stuff, the same design, and that's what works. And, and the little 7-inch one for the FAI, it's the same design. Ah, see, are you, and are you doing this as a business? Oh, we hope to eventually. Yeah, too uh, right we are looking to. Well, I'll tell you what, there's plenty of people that are going to listen to this podcast and be really intrigued. And You're I, right. I, you don't, I won't give them the number on air. Just send me a message and I'll pass on Robert's details. Just get onto flatoutrc.com.au, get onto the Contact Us page. And if you want Robert's details, Robert, do you want, are you happy for me to pass on your mobile number? Absolutely. If someone's interested, Shepparton was good. There was a lot of inquiries and, and people came up and typical, you know, the older guy that's retired and he's gone and built a model and, oh, I don't know what prop to put on my motor, rah, 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 and use a card made, send me your manufacturing specifications and you know, I can do some calculations. Now we've got, you know, props in the air and we know um, how much to cut back on, on the, the actual pitch now that we know how much air we can retain to the blade and the efficiency of it. Oh, tell you, you're going to have all these aerobatic iMacers and all this kind of stuff saying this sounds good or all those scale guys that are trying to get a bit more thrust because, you know, their models yep. are heavy or something like that. That's that's exactly what Kim said. He said, I don't know what, don't even know if this thing's going to fly, you know. So the way we go, and as I said to him, I said, if it's not right, I can hold it. Oh, how can you do that? He says, and I said, well, I made it so <laughs> I can sit and hold it. That's amazing. I'll tell you what, it's just you know what it does talking to you just your imagination starts to run wild as like i said <laughs> i'll give you an example in imac flying people were flying yep. big three meter wingspan models that were pretty heavy right yeah and originally yep. what do they weigh just oh 19 kilos maybe Right? Yeah, right. And so they yeah. started off using 150cc motors, then they went to 170, right. 175, and now they're all yeah. buying these, um, you know, 200s, right? Oh, and yeah. I'm like, okay, maybe, and the 200s are really expensive. Maybe with those models, if you, imagine if you could put a 150 in it or 175, but get the same kind of thrust because you, now you played around with the prop, it's actually going to be more cost effective for you. And you're basically tuning the model with the prop now. You know, to get that's, the fly the that's way exactly what we're doing. Um, you've got a given amount of horsepower, so when you work out the rev range you want that to, to run at, I can pitch the prop and blade, alter blade area and all that sort of thing to suit all that um, to get the performance you're looking for. And then, of course, you can paint it to whatever scheme you want as well. Yes, that's right. Typical Tim, he says, I want it, seeing this is new, he says, I want to make a statement. And I said, good. So he's got shiny black with big bright yellow stickers on it. <laughs> Surprising the number of people that spotted the stickers and through the, oh, it's got one of your props on it. How'd that happen? You know, but, uh, so there you go. Now, I've had well, half a dozen calls of people have spotted the yellow sticker from your last podcast. Yeah, okay. So this is what you need to do, people. I'm going to repeat that again. If you want to get in touch with Robert and you want to, you want to play around, with some props and get some better performance, get onto flatoutrc.com.au, get onto the Facebook page, send me a, a message on the um, Facebook Messenger. 
And if you do, I'll pass on Robert's uh, phone number so he doesn't get 900 phone calls all at once. We'll uh, drip feed him. So, um, and what's a lead time if somebody wants a prop? How, how quickly are you turning things around? Oh, well, um, depends what size it is. Um, well, you're looking at um, max at two weeks, you know, by the time I go and source timber and, and make it. And then the other thing, you've got to make sure the paint's cured properly before you pack it off and all that sort of stuff. That's all right. They won't be in a rush. Okay, Robert, that's just amazing about these propellers. It's really it's really got me fascinated now, and I'd love to try one. But tell me, there were some other things you were showing me, though, in Shepherd, and some other stuff yes. you've been doing with engines, right, and how you're getting more power out of car engines with, again, managing airflow and things like that. It just came to mind again. Tell, me, tell everyone about that because that's another intriguing story as well. Right, okay. So where did it come from? As I said to you earlier in the discussion we started pylon racing back in 77 and likes the range at feeling and those guys every time they flew a heat they'd come back and they'd take a cow off and check the motor and they'd tip the fuel unburned fuel out of the cow and i said to them everyone i saw where do you think that's coming from and all it must be coming out of the front seal the rah 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 and all this sort of stuff there's so much unburnt fuel you only got to see how black the pipes are that that's on the outside it's not inside so that was the first thing but it goes back to newton's law of physics the reaction wave and what i've this took me 40 years to wake up to this what's going on with it the pylon boys it's getting blown out of the venturi Straight out, the, they're losing half their fuel out of the motors. Yeah. It's not going through the motor. And worked out and designed and developed a, a one-way Venturi that goes in the intake system. We've got them in um, uh, O200s, uh, Continental O200s, and we've done them um, Jabiroos and all that sort of thing to stop this reaction wave. And with the V8s, we've got, a, we've got oh, about 10 classic cars on the road because you know what they're like. They're 60s models, and if you got um, 15, 18 miles a gallon, you were lucky. And uh, I've got a, a 1980 Chev pickup with a 350 Chev in it, and, that, and when I got that, it wouldn't do 10 miles a gallon. So I've developed these gaskets that go in the motors, and you're not touching the internals of it, of the motors that once i figured out what was required in the exhaust because the same thing we're doing on the exhaust as well this big two and a half ton ute is doing over 25 nearly 28 miles to the gallon on the highway and it's near impossible to hold it at 100k it just wants to keep going so what we're doing with the V8s and, and that, you produce them, um, with just the inlets done, you'll get 20% more horsepower and 25% more torque, and then and they'll do it on 20% less fuel. But once you do the exhaust as well, stop the reaction wave and burning un, uncompressed fuel all the way back to the carburetor, there's that much increase again by doing the exhaust. And the motors just run as smooth as, and 
got a friend up in Tamora. He's got an O200 in a um, Scorpion that he built. He's an ex-RAAF fighter pilot because they retire him when they're 55. And so he and his mate bought a, a kit and they built it and, and he put this O200 in. And, um, but it vibrated all the time and uh, went up there and had a look at it and he took me for a ride in it. I was glad to get out of it before the engine fell out and vibrated that much. So anyway, I made up a set of one-way Venturis for it and, and uh, put them in. It smoothed it out to no end. The motor just sat there, didn't vibrate. But the big thing, the prop on it he got on was a carbon fibre three-blader prop, about six foot six diameter, three-bladed. And the blades were tracking out of line about 30 mil. The engine was vibrating that much. The blade blades on the prop. You can see it in the daylight. Once we put the stop the reaction wave in the inlet manifold, the prop ran true. Yeah. And I was a bit disappointed we didn't get the horsepower increase like we got in the V eight and that on the road. But when he flew it, it had nearly eight k's, uh, eight knots more speed than it's ever had in its life. So yes, we did get horsepower, but the prop was running too true and it was converting it to speed. You need to make him some props though. Yeah. <laughs> so then he ended up this particular prop, it had a um, fairly narrow blade, but it had an aluminium boss around the, the hub where it all bolted together. It cracked one of those and I after we realised just how much that engine was vibrating and the flex and the prop blade, that's what caused it. Mm. Because now, he said, it just, he flies, you know, and it's doing, using two litres an hour less. But um, he had to, um, he had a spare cylinder there that grabbed an exhaust valve guide and, he, and I said, I want it. And so he sent it down to me and now I've made a, a set of gaskets to go in it, matched them up to that port. And where we I feel now that we were missing out on the horsepower gain is that engine has got a 186 degrees bend on the inlet port. That's a horseshoe. Yeah. And when you've got a, a reaction wave coming back there and, and better than Mach 1, it's a choke blocking the next charge coming in. So when he, we talked about this, he sent me down all the inlet tubes out of the motor from the carby up to the inlet ports. And each one of them had grey exhaust burn in the inlet pipes. And the, each one was different because they got the, all the electronics in the, in the um, cockpit on exhaust gas temperature from each cylinder. And I couldn't believe this when they pointed it out to me. Number one was running at 900 degree. But on the Jabiroos and number five, which was the cylinder at the back on the same bank, was 450. And I says, you've got to be kidding. So anyway, we did this little four-cylinder jab and put the, the cones in it dead even. And the four-cylinder motor put out more grunt than the standard six. Oh, really? Frightened the daylights out of the bloke flying it because never never had that much grunt before. Thought. And the motor's dead smooth. Yeah. And you don't have an engineering degree or anything? I'm mechanic. No. No engineering degree. Um, my son did engineering, went to uni. Um, three of our kids went through uni. Came home, oh, I think he was on his second year. 
and they, they give them a, a project over the Christmas holidays. And they said the project was they had to design a conrod to run in a Le Mans engine for 24 hours with average of 8,000 RPM. So I said, because we're tractor pullers, we built tractor pull engines, you know, and I, we ran the first blowing Hemi straight out of a funny car in a tractor oh, on methanol. We had to learn quick what was going on with, you know, big tractor gears that nearly a foot in diameter and rip every tooth off the off the off the gear, you know, because yeah. these Hemi was putting out twelve hundred horsepower at eight grand. And the tractor was designed for about 80 horsepower at 2,000. <laughs> so we had to learn quick. And being the Hemi, we, we set the slider clutch up uh, to lock up at about four grand. And, uh, and they had a Falcon GTHO tail shaft out of the back of the clutch into the tractor gearbox. Anyway, I was only the mechanic on it. I didn't own it, but the owner of it, first I hooked up the sled, I went and idled off and then put his big number 15 boot on the accelerator and it just screwed that falcon tail shaft off like it was nothing. Uh, and that was just engine talk. So they went, oh, it must have been a crook tail shaft. and went and got another one and same thing, screwed it off. So they didn't know what they were going to do. So I looked around and I found the old common truck. You may know they run a better. Um, nine or ten inch diameter journey, which is rubber grommets, four big rubber grommets on it. So we've got a lump of QT9 steel. We painted a white line down the, the shaft to count the turns, put it on there, and once that rubber grommets stopped the harmonics, that 1200 horsepower couldn't even crack the paint on the rubber. And that's the difference. And, you know, these are the things you learn and you don't forget. And the other thing about the engines that we're talking about, back to tractor pulling again, boys from the Wimmera out of Merlin, out of a tank. <laughs> and, uh, as you know, the Merlin's in the tank had four carbies on it. They weren't supercharged. So the boys got a couple of big turbos off trucks and made up the manifolds and all that sort of stuff. And... Um, hooked it up to the sled and idled off there and it pulled away and in the moment they put the boot in she just went <clears throat> stop dead yeah. and I was scrutiny here for the tractor pulling association at the time and this went on for a couple of years same thing over and over again and someone walked out of the crowd at one of the pulls and said ring this old guy this is back in the 80s he said he used to work on the lanks in the war the Merlins in the war talk to him which he did. This guy was in his 90s back then. And he said to him, you haven't taken the backfire plates out of the inlet manifold. He said, oh, yeah, we threw them in the bin. And he said, go and get them yeah. and put them back. That Merlin made 2,000 horsepower. It dug grooves from one end of the tractor pull strip to the other. The tyre speed on the tractor was 100 mile an hour. See, this is – there's a mate of mine, Marty Morgan, who flies model planes and he's into tractor yeah. pulling over in South yep. Australia. And I yep. keep on saying to him, I don't know why you wasted so much money on these tractor pullers. <laughs> and he turns up and his dad's got one, his brother's got one, I think his other brother yeah, might have right. one and he's got one. So it's basically the Morgan family are racing each other over in South Australia. Yeah. And I yeah. call it his, his lawnmower, his racing yeah. lawnmower. And, um, but he'd be, yes, I'm going to tell him to listen to this podcast so he can hear, hear what you're saying. Cause, and then he might give you a call to see how he can get more grunt out of his, his uh <laughs> 
lawnmower, as oh, I call it. got some money, I'll take it. Of course, <laughs> just take it. How old are you, Robert, now? Out of interest. How old do you think? Oh. I had a birthday last week. Did you? Yeah, 76. And you're still going strong. Yeah, it just keeps me alive, all this stuff, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what, it's something, there's, there's, there's something called experience, isn't there? There's a value in experience. Yeah. I, I just still am amazed at how much you've learned just through yes. trial and error. But it's not, I don't, okay, trial and error is definitely part of it. Well, let's call it research yeah. and development because that's what that's the yeah. official term, not a trial and error. But um, but you've done it, you've put a lot of thought into it. Like the, the VAs and that have touched on that, you know, but like over at Shepparton the other day, you get these blokes out of the city rock up, oh, what would you know about making props? And he was, you know, give it, he had yeah. one of mine in his hands and was Tim's other prop. And I said to him, mate, you've got 20, 20 years R&D in your hand there. And they look at you dumbfounded, you know. And then when they saw Tim's fly, well, they came back with a different attitude. When you, uh, when you really work on something like a propeller for that long, you're going to get somewhere with it, aren't you? Well, as long as you don't stalemate on your ideas, you've got to um, keep envisioning what's the next step. Well, this, the new lot of props, I'm only seven inches I'm working on for FAI. I haven't touched on that yet, but I won't either at this point, but it could be the next generation of props. Yeah. That's the difference of it. And again, it goes back to what happens at the sand barrier point and what angles is a, it's got to be on the props to make the air do the, what you want it to do, not what it wants to do and all that sort of stuff. I mean, if it works, well, you know, 400 Ks won't be an issue for the, for the FAIs at this point. So. It's interesting. Uh, there's a guy that I've mentioned a number of times throughout the years doing this podcast, and it's a, a gentleman by the name of Mike Pate who lives over in the US and he's into customizing yep. full-size aircraft. And yep. he... Uh have you heard of him, Mike Patey? Oh, I've heard YouTube? of him, but yes, I haven't done that much about him. Okay, so he, he's an amazing guy and what he can build. And he, he built this, he got this cub, right? And he called it Scrappy because he wanted to build it out of scrap parts, but he redesigned the whole thing because he went and put. Uh, I think I've seen he, that, pod, that podcast. Video. Well, I, 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 he's put like, I don't know whether it's an eight cylinder or something. It was, it was basically a, yeah, right. a race motor into the top of the thing. So he had to re engineer the whole thing. And one of his problems was propellers. And he claimed that, and he did. He does a lot of calculations on the computer and all that kind of stuff. And what he ended up putting on his plane was actually an air, a racing airboat propeller. So it looked like yep. big paddles, smaller diameter kind of thing, which gave him ground clearance. It's like a bush I know plane. exactly. I've seen this. That, yes. yes, I know what you're talking about. Now he is still saying that the prop development is still not there. That he thinks there's no, still something missing with propellers. And he thinks it, and that's he said he's got lots of ideas when it comes to propellers on what needs to happen because what he's trying to do now is it's 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 a it's a stall plane. He wants it to yep. accelerate hard, really down low to yeah. get that bite. They run a short takeoff competition, don't they? That's right. But he wants, but then he wants a propeller that's versatile enough that he can yes. pick up speed and cruise at a reasonable pace as well. And yep. he's got. He's got plenty of power. Like power's not his issue in a kind of way, but he's basically saying the same thing as you with with you know conventional propellers ha aren't progressing the way that they probably should. And no. he's identified that with that model. And 
when you see this plane with these big paddles of the thing, you think yep, it and you I've go, seen it. <laughs> yeah, how's that going to work? That's just so unconventional in a kind of way. But it's people like that and it's people like yourselves that really push things yep. along by going, well, let's just give it a go and see what happens. That's right. And he said it's not perfect. He still knows that it's not right. And he and he's got ideas that he just needs to get them made. But um, yeah, no, it's it's that's what you have identified, which is amazing. But uh, I tell you what, there's gonna I, I guarantee there'll be people sending me messages saying, "Can I get your phone number?" So you're gonna be busy. <laughs> so you won't be retiring anytime soon. Okay. We've got no intention to. Uh, the another one, the plastic example, was a car. Falcon car looked like a mundane, fairly old model Falcon car. It had uh, 351 in it with a stroker kit. And uh, and the guy said, you know, they, they put it together. Oh, it's putting out 500 plus horsepower. Rah, rah, rah. And he rings me up and he says, doesn't go like 500 horsepower. And so I made a set of gaskets up for him and we went down there and fitted them to the inlet. I haven't done the exhaust yet. So... They put it on the dyno there in Bendigo. And, uh, of course, they've got all the young blokes are saying, oh, they've done this and spent all this money in that. And here the bloke rocks up and he's got two aluminium gaskets on, on one on each head. Anyway, they stoked it up. They couldn't stop the wheel spin on the rollers until they got to 140k an hour. <laughs> <laughs> that tyre was smoking the tyres on the wire, on the... On the rollers, anyway, they had to back the throttle off till they got traction on the rollers. And then once it got grip, they opened the throttle again and it just went again and it produced um, 280 kilograms of, of grunt on, at the wheel, on the wheels. So it was a showery day in Bendigo. And this thing, at the traffic lights, in top gear, if you put the boot in going through an intersection on the wet bitumen, she light the back wheels up in top gear at 60k. You need to go and you know talk to a V8 supercar team or something and get their engines running. They won't listen to you. No one know about you. Yeah. What would you know about it? Yeah. See, the other big thing, you know, the supercars now, they're all computerised and all that sort of thing, but what we're doing, they'd have no control over it. And, yes, they'd cut the fuel back and all that's going to do is take a bit longer to to make horsepower because it hasn't got the energy there in each combustion. But there's a strong possibility that they could be knocking on the door of 400k, not 300 when they're coming down Conron. And then you've got to stop them. Yeah, that's the problem. And then the one bloke says, well, you better design as a brake bladder that pumps more air. Yeah. <laughs> so that's go. not how they... But, you know, where's the, you're looking at hypotheticals and where's the, the future. The way I see with the propellers what we've done, we're getting into the um, um, duck fan limits and, and performances and stuff like that. If you had a set of fan blades made with this design on it where you, to do away with your big fan blade against the stationary cone, that's where all the fuel and horsepower is just sucked up. The mind boggles. I'll tell you what, I can imagine you, your mind must go non-stop. Pretty much. Don't sleep much. 
I was going to say you don't want to sleep much. You just be like, what? <laughs> I reckon you have a lot of about what if I do th- that kind of moments? What if I do this? And then- yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, it's like the, as I started with it, as I said earlier, on the, when I put the return on the Texaco motor, I was disappointed in the fly speed, the, the flying speed. So that's when I put the 14 degree on the tip and then we got using this centrifugal force to generate thrust and using less horsepower. Same thing. As I said, it's when I do this podcast, I'm always looking for something a bit different. Like because this is the 124th episode, and yeah, I, right. I, it's hard to find people that might have a specialty, like you know, expertise in a in a specific area. And that's why, as soon as you started telling me, I went, "You're coming onto my podcast. We're going to talk propellers." And there's yeah. going to be people. I can guarantee you now. There's people sitting in their sheds listening to this. As they work on their models, thinking this is amazing, I need to get in touch with Robert Taylor to get him to build me a prop because everybody wants more grunt, and especially pylon races. Um, you know, like even It'd be nice if our Australian team could crack forty seconds, wouldn't it? Well, yes, and we've we've got the talent to do it. Uh, but yeah. imagine this glider competitions f5j gliders where you have a yep. 30 second motor runtime but if you run your time your motor for only 10 seconds right you get more points imagine if you had a more efficient propeller that gave you more thrust so you get height in a shorter space of time off a launch you'll be much better off exactly what the duration does i'll give you the um, last flight i flew in the duration model Telemetry on the transmitter, stopwatch in hand, and away we go. The motor's running 14 grand with one of these return props on it. The stopwatch said 20 seconds, and the telemetry said 2,000 feet, and it disappeared in cloud, and I couldn't see it. Oh, really? Blew it to bits. Gee. How, how much flying are you doing nowadays? Are you getting out to fly much? Yeah, if I want to test a prop and that, I can go into the local flying club and fly, test it. Where's the club? Kiuna, Kiuna Flying Club, it's only Kahuna. 15k from where I live. Grew up in Kiuna, born and bred there. You didn't travel Anyway, far, if you've got a pen. <laughs> <laughs> what have to do with a pen? You've got a pen? No, I've got a computer in front of me though. Oh, okay. Well, it's Taylor Props, all lowercase, all one word. Oh, there you go. At- That's even better. Taylor Props. Uh, yeah, at, at hotmail.com. That is a great way. Okay, people, you can send me a message if you like. Otherwise, send an email to Taylor Props, T-A-Y-L-O-R, Props, P-R-O-P-S, at hotmail.com. Yep. Send Robert Taylor a message if you want a propeller made up uh, and uh, please speak to him. He's going to help out because he loves making them and I'll tell you what, it sounds like they're uh, they're pretty awesome. Are they reasonably priced, the propellers? Yes, um, they're not cheap because there's a lot of time involved in them. Um, um, the, the price I quoted Tim uh, was comparable to what he was buying out of Germany, the carbon fibre ones, Yeah. with uh, you know 50% improvement on performance. And so, so he's happy. Well, there you go. Taylor the props. The ultralight props will depend on what size you're making there. Um, you know, they're up to a grand or better. Um, so there you go. Yeah, they're going to be big, um, more expensive. So Taylor Props at hotmail.com. Now, final question, Robert. It's the question that everybody can't wait to hear the answer to. And it, that question is, what has been your all-time favourite model that you've owned and flown? 
Well, I'd have to say it's the duration model for, for the old time. You fly a cumulus, which is a fairly streamlined model for 38, and YS63 in the front, and we work it to the hilt, and we feed it on 40% nitro, and it turns one of these, um, one of my props, uh, a 12.5 at 14,000 RPM. Um, that's about as much as a YS is like. If you go any more than that, the you seem to pull the whole exhaust valve out of the head. They fall out for 14 grand, they stay put. So, uh, yeah, and as I just mentioned before, the last flight, it was going up at uh, 2,000 feet in 20 seconds. So that's 1,000 feet in every 10 seconds. And, and that's 120 K on about a 75, 80 degree angle straight up. That's crazy. That's <laughs> crazy. That is absolutely <laughs> crazy. I'll tell you what. Well, Robert, it's been a pleasure having a chat with you and finding out more about these propellers. And I'm telling you, people are going to love this episode. Don't forget TaylorProps at Hotmail.com if you want to get in touch with Robert. Well done, Robert, and thanks for joining me. Well, thanks for the opportunity and I'd love to give you more detail on what we're doing with the engine and stuff like that because, uh, yes, there's a look at it, the engine side of it and the aircraft alone, they're doing nothing to, to try and green them up a bit. So this can make them a long way more efficient, you know, burn less fuel and have, have the horsepower without a sacrifice. We're going to have to have you back. <laughs> okay. About to leave, already packing. Come with me, I'm not really asking. We'll get away to a place where we don't know. Another episode of the Flat Out RC podcast done and dusted. A big thank you to Robert Taylor for joining me. I, I hope you enjoyed that chat. I really did. Uh, as I said, love talking to someone that's got that specialist expertise in a specific area. And uh, and Robert does. And I bet you're all sitting there thinking about propellers now and how you could get more grunt out of your motors just by changing the propeller. And I, no doubt... Many of you are going to contact Robert. The contact details are in the chat. I think you've got his uh, email address there. So send him an email. He might want to make you a prop. But it uh, sounds very, very interesting. And my mind was just I was sitting back just thinking, and I hope you were as well. Anyway, I hope that you're not flooded wherever you are. Uh, in Victoria down here, it's been very wet, as I've been saying. And hopefully that's going to clear up. I did see a forecast and there's <laughs> still some rain to come, but not a lot. Uh, so hopefully 12th and 13th of November down at Bansdale for the Warbird Day. Uh, I've teed up a Warbird. I don't own a Warbird, but my mate, the head of the peanut gallery, I rang him and, and I told him, because that's what you've got to do with the head of the peanut gallery. You just tell him, bring me a Warbird to fly. You fly mode two, I fly mode two. And he said, yes, he's going to bring one for me, so I don't have to worry about carrying a plane. Still a little bit injured in the arm, not allowed to lift stuff. But anyway, I'll be there. I'm going to have a lot of fun. So that's it. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, subscribe to the Instagram page, the YouTube channel, the Facebook page. Get on board with the Flat Out RC movement. I'll be back next week with a guest of some variety. I hope. Talk soon.